I don't know whether you remember Boxing Day, uh, the day after Christmas Day in 2004. It was uh, Sunday. I remember a very pleasant Sunday service for those of us who were here um, over the Christmas period. We sang a few more Christmas carols. We thanked God for a lovely Christmas day and we went home to enjoy cold meat over our Boxing Day lunches. News of what was happening on the other side of the world at that very moment had not yet reached us. Two minutes before one o'clock in the morning our time actually, the third largest earthquake ever recorded by a seismograph had occurred off the seabed of Sumatra. It triggered a series of tsunamis up to 30 metres high, which inundated the coasts of most of the land masses bordering the Indian Ocean, especially Indonesia and Thailand. And by the time that we had gathered even that morning in blissful ignorance, the other side of the world, 250,000 people had died. All kinds of people perished um, that day. There were wealthy Westerners having a Christmas holiday by the beach. 149 British people died. But by far the biggest group were the poor. Poor fishermen and uh, others in uh, Banda Aceh. Poor fishermen by the seaside in Sri Lanka. Forced to live more or less actually at the high tide line and therefore completely at the mercy of the tsunami. And not surprisingly, the question of innocent suffering soon arose in the media. There there were those who tried to say it was effectively a man-made disaster. They said we hadn't got a proper Pacific um, tsunami warning system. We had destroyed the coral reefs and the coastal forests which would have diffused the wave's power. Injustice had forced these fishermen to live so close to the, to the sea's edge. We had forgotten the ancient wisdom, which advised that if you hear an earthquake, go on to high ground if you are by the sea. So they said, it's really all our fault. But most people wondered, could, could we really say that? far more clamorous and penetrating was was the outcry against God. How could God allow such a thing to happen? Especially something so indiscriminate. It was children, especially, who were the most vulnerable in the face of that wave. There was no selection of the most wicked Indeed, the most innocent seem to be caught and killed in greatest number. Now, to be honest, that cry was not new. In 1775, for instance, another earthquake, this time off the coast of Portugal, destroyed 80% of the city of Lisbon. To make things worse, the earthquake struck at 9.40 in the morning on a very important Catholic holiday. So enormous numbers of, of Christians were in 
the uh, cathedral and other churches which collapsed on them and killed them. Some people suggested the Christians had been particularly selected by God. In the 18th century there was a popular Christian view around that though there was suffering in the world, the world is nevertheless ordered to to, um, minimise that suffering and to work all things out for the greater good of the greater number of people. The little ditty, all is for the best in the best of all possible worlds, was quite popular. The, uh, The atheist philosopher Voltaire at that time looked upon Lisbon and was outraged by the sufficient dismissal of the reality, the harsh reality of suffering. He wrote several things, most um, immediately, a poem on the Lisbon disaster. It began in this way, O miserable mortals, O rich, wretched earth, O dreadful assembly of all mankind, eternal sermon of useless sufferings, deluded philosophers who cry all is well, hasten, Contemplate these frightful ruins, this wreck, these shreds, these wretched ashes of the dead, these women and children heaped on one another, these scattered members under broken marble. Voltaire's cry was a was a visceral cry which exposed the superficiality of much Christian teaching of the day and actually drove many towards atheism. And it still happens today. Sometimes it's a great disaster like uh, the uh, 2004 tsunami, but more often it is a personal catastrophe. I could tell you many stories But one I remember very well is a beautiful young girl in a youth group that I helped to run. She was called Mandy Peters. And one day Mandy was crossing a busy road and she was knocked down and killed. And at her funeral, her father said he'd been wondering whether there might be a God of love as Mandy had come home to him and told what she was learning in the youth group but not now. If there was a God, he said there was, he was a cruel, malevolent sadist. And frankly, he'd rather be an atheist than contemplate a God like that. And, and to be honest, I know that we gathered here could recount a hundred, perhaps a thousand stories like that. I know it's not about other people as well. Some of those stories are about us. Our own questions, our own anger, our own pain, our own doubt. The painful reality of innocent suffering is one of our culture's biggest objections to the Christian God. Indeed, biggest objections to the idea of God in general. Sceptics before and after Voltaire mocked 
Christian teaching as hopelessly out of touch with the cruel realities of this world. Frankly, in my view, often rightly. But over the next few weeks, I want to show you the Bible is not out of touch in that way. It is not superficial. It is not blind to the realities of life. Indeed, I want to try to persuade you that actually the Bible gives the only fully satisfying answer to that perennial cry of the human heart in the face of suffering, why? But I want to warn you now, it is not going to be perhaps quite the answer that we expect or quite the answer that at first we want. And I want to warn you as well that it's going to take time for that answer to slowly unfold over the coming weeks as we look at this most challenging and extraordinary and I want to tell you life-giving book of Job. So I want to say to you, stick with this. I'm really only going to be able to sketch out the beginnings of what the book of Job starts to say to us this morning. Stick with it. If you're not going to be here on subsequent weeks, we put it on the internet. Listen. Do not um, um, be satisfied with superficial answers or no answers. The book of Job is a massively important book in the Bible. So let me introduce Job to you. A little bit about him, his plight and his God. Just start to sketch a few things for you that we will build on in coming weeks. There's actually an awful lot we don't know about this book of Job. We don't know the author. He never declares himself. He just tells the story. We don't know the date of the book either. Or, uh, or the date of the events in Job's life. Actually, we don't know for certain that Job himself was a historical figure. It begins sounding rather like a fairy tale. In the land of Uz, verse 1, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. Uz is a, is a land vaguely to the east of the river of Jordan, but no one's quite sure where it is. The repeated num- use of numbers 7 and 3 in these introductory verses sounds rather idealised. If you know the Bible, often 7 and 3 are sort of symbolic numbers of completeness. And some people suggest perhaps this is just an extended parable written to teach us vital truths, as Jesus used parables. That wouldn't in any way diminish its authority. Sometimes actually a, a, a story of that kind can clarify issues much better than the messiness of history. But actually, um, on closer examination, it probably appears to me at least that, that he is an historical figure. The, um, the, 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 uh, the standard in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was, who, and something about him, uh, and so on, is often used of historical figures in the Old Testament. And Job himself is mentioned as a hero of the faith. 
uh, elsewhere in the Old Testament. It seems more likely that Job is a historical figure, but um, <coughs> that this book has, uh, has built on that historical reality an extended reflection of the issues that Job um, uh, struggled with. We do not need to assume that Job himself, um, off the top of his head, while suffering and miserable, came up with some of the most extraordinary and beautiful poetry that, uh, that, that there is found in this book. Um, that is uh, the result of extended reflection, it seems. But the fundamental question is the fundamental question that comes up again and again and again in this world. Why do the innocent suffer? The first thing the book uh, wants to establish is, uh, is Job's innocence. If, if Job has sinned in some way and God is punishing him, there's not a fundamental problem for most of us, I think. God is just. God must punish sin. If God visits a punishment that is proportionate to our sin on us, then uh, uh, there is not a great problem. But um, uh, Job chapter 1 wants to establish very um, uh, solidly at the beginning that Job is innocent. What is Job's contribution to his suffering? Answer, nothing. Did you notice in verse 1, this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Neither is the calamity that is about to befall his children. Their just punishment, actually. Job performs the necessary sacrifices to secure their forgiveness. His sons, verse 4, used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays and would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. And early in the morning he would make a sacri- sacrifice, a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job regular practice. There is no pretense that people are innocent but the necessary things for, um, uh, for sins perhaps that go on unseen in their hearts was dealt, dealt with. We couldn't be clearer. The suffering that is about to befall Job and his family is innocent suffering. Not, not, not totally without sin. We're going to explore that um, um, Uh, next week, because the Bible says very clearly, all have sinned. But it is not the result of a particular sin of Job's. Now, some people um, are inclined to um, try to whitewash over this problem of innocent suffering by saying, all have sinned, and therefore none of us deserve Uh, anything good from God, for each of us, even the best of us, our sins are sufficient to deserve God's just punishment and it is only God's mercy that we don't suffer more. Well, that may be theologically true in one sense, but Job is not happy with that. Job is not satisfied with that and nor should we be. No, perfectly innocent he may not be. But the point is, he's about as innocent as you can get. And yet he suffers far, far more than anyone else. That's Job's um, 
contribution to his suffering then that is established. But the next thing we need to look at more carefully is God's contribution to Job's suffering. And here we're going to see a couple of things that are very, very important for us to hold in tension. The one is that uh, chapters 1 and 2 portray God very clearly as in charge. God is sovereign. He sits in a heavenly court. Satan, whom we will look at in a moment, along with all the angels, must present themselves to God in this court. Verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. Here is God enthroned and he summons even angels, even Satan, to answer to him. There is no hint that anything happens behind God's back or outside of his control. Everything happens to Job, that happens to Job, happens by God's permission. Now, this is really, really important and really tough for us to engage with, I think. I mean, immediately, for instance, it rules out of court any of the standard old solutions to this problem of evil. For instance, historically many peoples and cultures have been polytheists, partly uh, because they see the chaotic nature of this world and they think there must be a chaotic, rumbustuous group of gods um, fighting with each other behind the scenes in this world. That's the only way they can explain it. What more straightforward answer? And yet the Bible from beginning to end insists that is not a satisfying answer. There is only one God, it says, and he is in control. Other philosophies have been, have tried to simplify it down, not from many gods to to perhaps two. They've been dualistic, imagining a a constant battle between a a spiritual force of good and a spiritual force of, uh, of evil. But the Bible, again, is not dualistic in that way. It insists actually that there are not two equal and opposite forces in this world. In the end, there is one supreme force. The good God. If we were dualistic, you see, we would have no assurance that final victory would go to the good side. Only because the Bible insists that the good side finally rules God himself, the good God. Can we have any confidence about the future? Popular solution of the last few hundred years to this problem of evil have been uh, what has come to be called deism. Deism says God is, God is good, but but he's so far away, he's not really in control of the details of this world. He, at best, he sort of looks at this world with, with incredibly powerful binoculars and observes from a distance and, and somehow, so, somehow is sovereign so that finally, at the end, he will sort all things out. But for now, He's just not in control of day-to-day events. It's a very attractive friend, uh, 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 um, uh, solution. I remember a friend of mine, 
a veterinary friend actually, called uh, Richard. I remember talking to him years ago about his son. His son died from meningitis caused by a bug that my veterinary friend had brought home from a calf. Imagine the turmoil of that. And um, he told me that a well-meaning minister had told him, well, he couldn't blame God because God doesn't get involved in controlling which bacteria happened to come home on his clothes. And uh, Richard said, well, that was some comfort because he was feeling very, very angry with God. But I have to say, I thought, Richard, doesn't that leave you with an even deeper problem? It means that actually final responsibility lies only with you. I've lost touch with him now. I don't know how he's handled it in the long term. But it seems to me a world that is governed by us in the short term is a world of terrible, awesome, crushing responsibility. The Bible says, yes, we do bear responsibility. And that's important. But not on our own. No. Still, in the details of what happens in this world, there is a God who is in control. Do you notice how God has seen the details of Job's life? He will say to Satan in verse 8, look at my servant Job. And we will see as the verses go on that he is absolutely in control of the details of Job's fate. That heightens the challenge of coming to terms with this God. But it does at least liberate us from that idea that we and we alone are responsible for everything. No, the Bible insists. What happens in this world, even in its details, is still under the sovereign hand of God. God is in control from beginning to end of Job's life. God rules. But the other uh, thing that we need to engage with and hold very much in tension with this is this second idea. Evil is real, though not sovereign. If it was sovereign, we would be dualists. We would be believing that there was just two equal and opposite forces. And that is not how it is portrayed. But evil is very, very real. Personified in the person of Satan the devil. Did you notice that? One of the, angel, the angels came, presented themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. 
Satan or the devil is portrayed as a, a, in the Bible as a fallen angel, a spiritual being who chose evil and then becomes the head of all forces of evil opposed to God. And these, this chapter insists he has some freedom. Verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered, from roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro on it. He's been out there on his own with with his own purposes, doing his own thing upon the whole world. He has a degree of freedom. He hates human beings. Indeed, he is utterly cynical about them. Verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face, he says. Here, here, here is a malevolent person who has a degree of liberty, who has um, um, uh, his distinct purposes. He's called Satan here, which means the accuser. He loves to accuse human beings. And the power he has before God is in part as he brings those accusations against human beings before God. The potential force of this accusation against Job, that he only worships God, uh, frankly, for for what he can get out of it, but not really for his love of God. The potential force of that is what stimulates and provokes God into allowing Um, some suffering to come Job's way. Verse 12, the Lord said, very well, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And then in verses 13 to 19, we see um, Job losing his oxen, his donkeys, his servants, his sheep, and then finally his children. Evil is real. And as the story unfolds, it gets worse. Satan, uh, Job just continues to worship God and Satan comes back again. Verse 4 of chapter 2. Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. But notice... At the very point where the, 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 the profound, nasty reality of evil becomes most expressed in Job's life, we see most clearly the limits that God sets on the malevolence of Satan. We've already seen he had to present himself as court, at court. We've already noticed he had to come to God and seek permission to, for suffering to be inflicted. Um, but now we see God setting limits very clearly on the degree of suffering. Um, very well, the Lord says in verse 6, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. Here it is then. Evil, here personified, 
in the father of all evils, Satan, is very real, has a degree of autonomy from God, goes throughout the world, but he is limited. He is not sovereign. He must come to God for any permission to do his evil. And God sets limits on the evil that he can do. You see, there are belief systems that deny the reality of evil. They say evil only looks real. Pantheism, for instance, um, um, uh, which is the the sort of basic belief of, of Buddhism, says that everything that we see is ultimately God. And therefore, it cannot be seen as somehow evil, it just is. Our experience of suffering is because we are not sufficiently attuned and adapted to the universe, which is God. If only we can come to terms with it, we would no longer experience um, or the, the troubles of this world as evil. And uh, most people, and the Bible emphatically says, rubbish. Evil is real. We experience the world. We know instinctively there is a goodness about the world and that evil is a, is a nasty, alien intrusion into this world. It is not fundamental to what this world was always intended to be. Atheists, in many senses, are very similar to, to pantheists. They say, well, the world just is. There's nothing beyond it. And therefore, the, the category of evil, again, is a meaningless one. Because whatever is, is. And evil is only just what I happen to like or not like. It disappears the more we look at it uh, uh, in an atheist world. Again, the Bible and I think most human beings say, rubbish, I sense that there is this, this alien thing, this evil thing, this, is, this thing which is not the way it was supposed to be, that is in this world. The Bible says exactly right. Because what you sense is a good God who intended to make a good world and into this world through our sin and Satan's malevolence came evil. That's the scene then that is set in Job chapter 1 and 2. That is the scene in heaven somehow on December the 26th, 2004, when that tsunami was unleashed on the Indian Ocean. That is the scene in heaven as whatever suffering most troubles you was unleashed upon you. And I accept that it is not an easy answer. There are easier answers. 
You could be a polytheist and just say, oh, it's about God's fighting. You, you, you could be a dualist. You could be an atheist. You could be a pantheist and just try and seek inner calm as you meditate. There are a thousand and one other ways of understanding this world. But what I want to say to you is ultimately they will not satisfy I want to call you to come on Job's journey. Job has not seen what was going on in the courtroom of heaven. We have been led into that as a taster. He is in the dark as he faces his suffering. And he is going to take a long time before he comes to a place of peace. And I don't expect it to be easy for you either. But I want to call you to embark upon that journey. I particularly want to warn you against three easy options which will not do you any good. The one option is, I I won't think about this. Yeah? I'll, I'll, I'll just ignore it. I'll just hope that it goes away. I'll just, just, just take the rough with the smooth and just, just get through life as best I can. I will not think about this. Let me, let me say, when ostriches bury their heads in the sand, they are completely vulnerable. They may think they're safe, but a lion can eat them easily. If you bury your head in the sand, sooner or later the reality of this world will catch up with you. I've been a Christian for long enough, I've been a pastor for long enough to see that happen again and again and again to people who who just are satisfied with a superficial understanding of God. I, I told you I was in Central Asia and one of the characteristic things that they said was when times got tough, people just fell away because they did not have a deep understanding of God. Do not say to yourself, I can't be bothered with this. It's all too dark and difficult. You need to have a deep understanding of God. Insofar as you have a capacity to understand him and to know him, you need to stretch so that you are ready for when the day of evil comes. The second easy solution I want, want you to, uh, uh, to warn you against is just saying, oh, well, perhaps just God's not as good as he claims to be. And life may suggest that to you. You may be sitting here thinking, he doesn't look so good. You may have experienced something that that makes you really question whether God is the good, perfect, holy God. I want to say to you, that may be an easy solution, but look again at what the Bible says. This world is full of saints. The Bible is full of saints who have come through 
those dark periods to a deep and satisfying understanding of the goodness of God. The third thing I want to warn you against, the third simple solution is to say God is not in control. Well, if he's not, then all the promises of the Bible disappear like sand through our fingers. It's the reason why, from beginning to end, the Bible says, no, there is a sovereign God who is still in control. If you want to keep your Christian hope, and wrestle through those questions and see what the Bible says about the sovereign hand of God. In the end, the Bible promises that makes the most extraordinary promises that I want all of us here to have very firmly in our hearts. In the end, we're promised that one day he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he promises that to you because everywhere, including in the life of Job, including in your life, he's still in control.